Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Jaren Keith Gaynor, Managing Editor of Politics at The Grio. And I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, Social Media Director for The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, does queer acceptance go both ways? <laughs> but, uh, you know, before we even go ahead and, and get into that, I read something that was pretty pivotal, G, uh, and I think is definitely going to be like some interesting information for our episode. So according to a recent Gallup poll, the number of people who identify as bisexual in the United States is rising. In fact, this number has increased from 1% to 3% in the last decade or so. More than half of adult LGBT identifying individuals, about 52%, self-describe as bisexual. And according to the Human Rights Campaign, more than 40% of queer folks of color identify as bisexual. But despite these numbers, the stigma around bisexuality still remains. On today's show, we'll zoom in on bisexual identity and the Black community's ongoing journey toward queer acceptance across identities. We'll be joined by educator, advocate, and hip-hop artist Timum West, who has deep experience as an advocate for LGBTQ plus young people and young adults in and outside of their work as an educator. You know, Shauna... I'm really glad we're talking about bisexuality and biphobia because as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, I can honestly say that there is a lot of bi erasure out there. When I was coming up and trying to, uh, I, always, I always knew I was gay, but I definitely wanted to explore whether or not I was bisexual because the black church was telling me that uh, being gay was wrong and it was a sin. And I'm like, okay, well, I can't be gay but I like men. I don't find attraction to women. And I'm like, well, maybe I do like women. Do I like women? And we don't create spaces for black men to, to really uh, explore their sexuality and be open and honest. And, and if we're being honest, a lot of gay men came out the closet as bisexual as like a cover because it was, it felt safer to tell your family and friends that you're bisexual, that you're bisexual because people would be less, I guess it'll be less stigmatizing. But the reality is that people who actually are bisexual and or, and or pansexual, they actually don't come out the closet. They actually have the same fears, if not more fears than we as uh, homosexuals uh, feel about coming out the closet. You know, I think that I, I actually, when I'm thinking about my social circle, um, I can't think of one person I know who is openly bisexual. I went to Morehouse College where I assumed there were some people who were bisexual because I I've dated or I wouldn't even, I'm saying dated lo- dating loosely, but I dated young men at that time on the campus who today are not homosexual. They are married with children. Some of them I, they, they they haven't declared anything. Um, and so, but it was a it was an interesting experiment, if you will, on the campus of Morehouse. I think it was a microcosm of of the black men in America who are trying to find their freedom and find liberation, but it can be difficult to do that even on a campus, a college campus where people are usually sexually uh, explorative. I think it's now's the time, especially with Gen Z out here pushing the culture forward, forcing us to really confront what it means, what these terminologies mean and what it means to be, to identify how you identify, whether it's your pronouns or whether it's your sexuality. 
um, or gender expression. And I'm glad that we are here because it's time that all people, all of us can be free and authentic in who we are, whatever we are, whoever we are. Uh, but Shauna, what's been your experience? Uh, I know that you've talked about this on Dear Culture uh, before, but tell us about your thoughts around bisexuality and biphobia. Um, I mean, so for me, I typically tend to feel really bad for Black men because, again, they're not able to have the freedom of exploring their sexuality, right? Like for myself, I have had sexual experiences with women. I wouldn't classify myself as bisexual. I don't find myself particularly attracted to women. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I've said on the show before, I usually prefer to date sexually fluid men. So whether they're pansexual, bisexual, whatever, I tend to find them a little bit uh, less uh, problematic. But one thing that I can say is, and it's an, it's an issue as it relates to black women, especially, especially cisgender black women, as it relates to biphobia, bi erasure. Um, I've had conversations with, you know, my female friends who they're like, Oh, well, you know, you're out here like dating these these gay guys like you got to be careful because, you know, you might be able, you might catch something that house in Virginia. And if you don't know what that is, look at the acronym. Um, but, you know, you might you might catch something. And it's like that is rooted in ignorance. That's rooted. In, that's rooted in biphobia. It's rooted in homophobia. It's rooted in just honestly, just nonsense in general. Um, you know, that, why is there this idea of someone who is bisexual, who's attracted to both the uh, genders or sexes that all of a sudden that they're incredibly greedy, that they can't be satiated, that they're always going to cheat, that they're always, you know, up to no good in some kind of way or form. <sighs> There's so many layers in all honesty to unpack. Um, so I'm in all honesty, I'm just really looking forward to jumping into the conversation with today's guest. Yeah, me too. Today's guest is an advocate, an activist in and outside the classroom. Timon West is an educator, author, and performance artist. His work focuses on having a positive impact on the LGBTQIA two-spirit community focused on young people and young adults. West has worked as an educator and activist in K-12 public schools and at the post-secondary level, teaching and serving as department chair in Oakland and D.C., where I reside. He has also taught at the New School, Stanford University, and Humboldt State University, where he is currently a visiting lecturer in their Department of Critical Race, Gender, Sexuality Studies. He currently leads LGBTQ plus community initiatives at Teach for America, working nationally to advance safer and braver classrooms for LGBTQ plus students and their educators. Timon, welcome to Dear Culture. It's a pleasure to have you. It's good to be here. Uh, awesome. I'm so excited for you to be here because this is this is going to be a very educational episode, quite frankly. Yes. <laughs> so, Tim, I know you personally identify as pansexual. Um, and so I, I recently was educated on what that means uh, <laughs> by my 14 year old niece. Shout out to my baby. Uh, but for those of us who may not be as, um, you know, not knowledgeable in the nuances, can you ex can you educate us and the audience on what is what exactly are the differences between between pansexuality versus bisexuality. Absolutely. And I think pansexuality was kind of a new identity for me. 
Um, you know, I, I understood and had some recognition of what it meant to be both attracted to men and women. Uh, but then as we begin to actually see other gender identities emerge, people that are non-binary, people that are transgender, uh, pansexual uh, identification actually just suggests that, like, you can be attracted to people. Uh, you were saying earlier sort of this idea of, like, I, if I vibe with you, I vibe with you, right? Uh, <laughs> if, if I feel your energy. And I think on occasion, as, as I've gotten more in tune with my freedom and my own attractions, uh, I encounter people that I'm attracted to that fit outside of that binary of, like, cisgender woman or cisgender guy. Uh, and, and And so... That is a way of acknowledging that, like, I can be attracted to a lot of things. Uh, one way of saying it is like, you know, I, I'm not heterosexual, but don't assume anything else. Um, you know, I, you could I could be attracted to a woman. I could be attracted to a trans woman, a trans guy, someone that's non-binary. So it's just a more expansive notion of, of sexual attraction uh, and also emotional attraction. Because I think often we only think about it in terms of sex. Uh, you know, and if I'm abstinent and I ain't even having sex, well, I guess I'm nobody sexual. I don't know. But uh, I think that people fail to remember that it's emotional connections and relationships that also make up uh, this this matrix of sexuality that we talk about. Uh, mm. Well, see, again, Gen Z be, be educating. I'm trying to tell you. Shout out to you, Lonnie, if you ever listen to this, baby. Uh, <laughs> so, I, you know, and I want to make sure that we're educating our audience because language is changing so quickly these days. And, you know, if, you, if you're not paying attention, you will get left behind. So I think our our audience in particular, like they're so familiar with the word like homophobia right so what can you define for us like what is biphobia and how do you distinct how you how do you distinguish homophobia from biphobia well i'll just <laughs> say it this way you know i, I think as someone that has identified as, as pan you know it's, it's interesting because there are circles and spaces where i don't because uh the best way to put to explain biphobia is that we get it on both sides. Mm -hmm. There are uh, there are cultural mythologies about people who are bisexual, and in particular, black men who are who are bisexual. There's a double standard where uh, uh, women can sometimes be ce celebrated or lauded or thought, oh, that's really a great thing if a woman can acknowledge both an attraction to to men and women, which is often an extension of heterosexism and 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 sexism like because it's really for them like oh this is about the man's pleasure right mm -hmm. <laughs> um but i think you know in particular when it comes to men like i think one of the reasons i was even afraid to acknowledge my at one point bisexuality was was because you know people thought of bisexual men as greedy i had people say confused well just sort of make up your mind right I even mm -hmm. had I, but that was on the straight side of things. On the gay side of things, I had people say I was confused, or that I'm, I'm actually really, really gay, but I just can't admit it to myself, right? Mm -hmm. So there's almost a, a doubt and a suspicion that if you acknowledge attraction to both, that there's some dishonesty there, there's some confusion there, and I think it really goes against all the science that we know about sexuality and the continuum, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I finally got to a point where I stopped hiding the fact that I was attracted to women to my gay friends. Right. And, and they will say things like I had, I had a friend tell me actually just last year, he said, well, Tim, what was it? When was the last time you've been with a woman sexually? As if like bisexuality has an expiration date. <laughs> like everyone's like, if I'm in a primary relationship with a guy, I got to go dip on the woman's side just to sort of 
authenticate my bisexuality. It doesn't work mm. that way. Similarly, you have women that are in primary relationships with men, right? They may have been married. Five, it doesn't mean that they are straight. Mm-hmm. You know, they may be bisexual, but they may be in a monogamous relationship with an opposite sex partner. So there's a lot of assumptions that we make about sexuality. Mm-hmm. And there are probably a lot more people who identify somewhere in the continuum, even if they are in opposite sex relationships or same sex relationships. Right. Mm-hmm. But they don't have to go test it to make sure it's still there. Right. Uh, but but I think that's an, uh, an understanding. We understand things better if it's like black or white. And we really struggle with those grays uh, in in the middle. And uh, it's interesting because I had a conversation with a friend who said he was he feared uh, admitting to women that were interested in him that he had experimented with uh, uh, male sex back in college. Right. He hasn't since then. It's been like 30 years. But that's (laughs) a secret that he has to hold because he's like, oh, if you admit that, then you might as well be gay. Yep. Right. Whereas a woman mm-hmm. can can say, oh, I went through an experimental phase or I kissed a girl and I liked it. You know, all Katy Perry like. And it's no <laughs> big deal. Right. She can have multiple kids and can be completely considered heterosexual and, you know, and all that. But so I think we really have to question these double standards in our community that are associated mm-hmm. with uh, a lot of toxic masculinity. And that actually, ultimately, you know, I, I hate to say this, but we complain about the DL, but our community created the DL. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Say that. This is a really good conversation, Tim. I'm like, I'm really glad that you are being open and honest because I think there's not enough black men uh, as a representation for people who identify as pansexual or bisexual. Um, I went to Morehouse College, so I definitely know what you're talking about when it comes to men who experimented. Uh, some of them experimented with me. <laughs> and um, and. They are not gay and I presume not bisexual. They are married. They have children. Um, and we don't allow black men to safely explore their sexuality. Um, and I think it's really important. Uh, but I also want to touch more on um, on terminology, because here at Dear Culture, it's really important that we really set the tone for what words mean. Um, and, and two words I really want to hone in on are heteronormativity and queerness. Uh, I tend to look at the world through the lens of a a queerness lens. Um, But can you just quickly describe to our listeners what we mean by heteronormativity and queerness? Absolutely. But two important terms. And one of the best ways to explain heteronormativity for me is just uh, when people hear the term straight privilege. Right. This idea that, you know, if, if I have a picture of me and my partner, I'm single, y'all, so like, hey, uh, but, uh, but my hypothetical partner, if I had a picture of them on my desk at work, someone might say to me, well, why do you have to put that in my face? Or why do you always have to, sh-? you know, and they may be having a picture on their desk of them and their wife or their kids or their family. So it's this idea that like the, uh, the default assumption for everybody is that we're straight. And anything outside of straightness is kind of interrupting our lives in some kind of way, right? When in fact, the reality is, like, I'm not doing anything different than what you're doing. But it's that we've established heterosexuality as a norm. And heterosexism is that default assumption that, like, I'm going to assume everyone's straight until they tell me otherwise, right? And when they tell me that it's somehow an affront to, like, my sense of normalcy, and so it's really getting to a place. Um, I had a really powerful experience with a um, with a, a youth leader many, many moons ago. 
uh, Derek Candy does a lot of youth development work and, you know, a uh, straight guy. And we were, we were sitting in the van and there was a group of young brothers that we were, I think we had just played basketball or something. I used to be a basketball coach and he was talking about um, a relationship and that relationship kind of coming to an end. And I was talking about my breakup and it was just kind of back and forth. And, you know, one of the young men in the back said, wow, that was so normal. And it was almost like a shock to them that like me and the straight brother could be having a conversation about breakups, right? That were, that seemed really normal to them, right? Uh, which I thought was really, it said a lot about our culture in terms of like the heterosexism would say that like, that's a different conversation than the straight conversation about a breakup when some of those same dynamics and elements are all the same. So I think it's that idea that like, homosexual or anything outside of that is this freakish different thing over here and that I can't touch it. Um, you know, so it was one of the things I challenged people on when, when the movie Moonlight came out and I had friends go, oh, I, I'm not, I can't see that. I'm like, why can't you see it? Like, well, it's a coming of age story. Why can't you see it? And it was like, there was this terror and fear of like somehow contagion. Like if you see two men kiss, is that somehow going to make you want to kiss a guy? Probably watching that gay stuff. Right. You know, it's, it's ridiculous to me. Look, all the heterosexual films and kisses I've seen all my life did not influence me uh, one bit. So I don't think it really works that way. Um, the other term, queerness, I, I, I like queerness because in, in some ways, and I, you know, I, I like to point attention to E. Patrick Johnson, who is like uh, seen as sort of the, the father of Black queer studies. It's important to mention the, the scholarly body of work around this. And, um, you know, he, he uses a term called queer and it's actually rooted in black Southern colloquial experience. And it's different than queer because I think queer sometimes for a lot of people is like, Oh, that's that white people term that we've used. Right. And we've even seen instances where, you know, I, I think even in the closer, right. Like when, when Dave Chappelle is talking about like LGBT people, I was like, he ain't talking about me. Like, he, he wasn't talking about me. He was talking about the white queer folks, right? Because I'm I'm black just like other black people. You know, when I walk out my door, when I'm walking in my neighborhood at dusk in an in a integrated neighborhood, I keep my hands visible because I'm concerned if I have to pull my hands out of my pocket, just like any other black man, that I'm subject to the same things that they are experiencing. And so I think, but I, I do think the power of queer as a, as a term is that one, it's politicized. It's the reclaiming of a term that was seen as negative as positive. And it also, th there is something called homonormativity, which I think is important for us to talk about, right? Uh, if you have heteronormativity and the assumption that everything is, is heterosexual, you get this thing of homonormativity where like, it's okay if you're gay, if you look a certain way, and if you are married with like 2.5 kids with a picket fence. So there are a lot of people that have come to accept LGBT identity only if it looks just like straight people, right? Like, Oh, you know, uh, you, you're just like us. You're just gay. And I'm like, well, no, it's a little bit different than that. Right. Because, you know, my my experience and my queerness for me informs how I think about things. It informs my sense of justice and activism. It's, it, it's not just about who I sleep with in the bed, which is why it's always insulting. When people say, well, I don't need to know who you're sleeping with in the bed. I'm like, my identity is so much more than what I do in a bed at any given time. And so it, it's, it's about a way of seeing the world. And I see queerness as, the, as, as a way of really shaking that up, particularly for people of African descent 
who have bought into a lot of colonial mindsets of what the perfect nuclear 2.5, that is not, that is not us. That's not us from an indigenous perspective and, and, and where we come from and even spirituality, but we've embraced that and we've held held on to it because it gives us access uh, to uh, power in a white supremacist culture. And I think it's important to interrogate that, right? Like, what does it mean as free Black people to interrogate all of these structures and norms that we've been taught are the white, right way to do things? I did say white way. I think that was a <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, well, first off, I say that. OK. And mm-hmm. I just the idea, the ideology of, you know, the whole idea of homonormativity, like I just had to educate my grandmother this past what Sunday or, or last week, Sunday. I'm a huge 90 day fiance fan. There's a great gay couple on there, like a white guy and this like uh, Mexican man. And my grandmother calls, who's also a fan. She's like, well, which one is the woman? Miss Ma- Miss Mamas, like, <laughs> please don't let me have to cuss you out. <laughs> it's just like, like, come on. But that's now, how but... we that's how we understand it. Right. Like we understand we we can we can understand gayness if we can somehow map it onto us. And, you know, as I had a I had a, a relative say to me, you know, Tim, and one of the one of the most powerful things about seeing you in relationship with men. Right. Many of whom show up very masculine as you do is that y'all do what you like. And she was like, I don't like cooking. He like cooking. So he going to cook and I mow the yard because I like being out in the yard. And so I think we actually she was like heterosexism, heteronormativity doesn't work for a lot of heterosexuals. So even I see a lot of my heterosexual friends really challenging some of these norms around how they're supposed to show up. Right. Men who were saying, you know what, my wife is making good money. You know, I'm going through a tough time, but I'm going to stay home and take care of the kids and not feeling shame or emasculation as a part of that. But feeling like, no, this is my responsibility as someone who partners with my partner in relationship. We are in relationship together. We do what's necessary to make this family work. So I think all people can really gain something from uh, to, to that point of queerness as a mindset and as a way of really disturbing the norm of how people think things should be. Mm. See, okay, and so I wanted to ask, you know, heteronormativity definitely keeps us, I believe, from like seeing biphobia. Um, What do you think are and and this is the thing. There are people who like to say, you know, well, it's just a preference that I don't date someone who is bisexual or anything like that. Right. You always hear the the preference. And when but when you peel back the layers, it's biphobic, <laughs> right? So can you give us what are some I, more I, examples of biphobia? I was dating. A, I was dating a woman probably about 10 years ago, and she told me she needed to break up with me because uh, I, I was just too comfortable with my bisexuality or pansexuality. And she, one of the phrases she used, she said, you know, you have double the options. And I said to her, well, we're in a monogamous dating situation. I don't have any options. Like, would you feel better if I cheated with another woman as opposed to a man? Like, I just didn't quite understand the logic of that. But again, it goes back to these these mythologies of being greedy and satiable. Like, you, I, not you're not going to be able to handle that. And I uh, and I think it's just really interesting in terms of that biphobia stemming from which I think is also toxic masculinity. We talk about toxic masculinity as it relates to men. We don't often challenge women in our community on the ways that they also perpetuate toxic masculinity. Sometimes, I do. First, sometimes <laughs> a woman telling the, the boy to, to shut up and not cry is not a man saying that. So a lot of black women have also internalized these norms 
And I see it because I have straight friends, straight male black friends who are also uh, living in what I call a very constrictive mailbox. I call it the mailbox where anything you do outside the mailbox is like makes you suspect. Right. You can't say another man is handsome. You can't say you like his shirt except for saying no homo or pause. There are all these rules and it's 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 tiring. So I'm glad that I've created a space in my relationships with with men, both gay and straight and in between. Uh, where we create these spaces where we can show up and, and really challenge some of those norms. But I also think that biphobia really prevents that. Right. Like how many men might be more honest and authentic with women? if they felt that there was a space to do so without being judged. Because on the other side of that, which is really scary, is like, if you don't create that opportunity, then you can't get mad, you know, when he decides not to tell you about this deep, dark secret, because you somehow feel like that makes him less of a man, he can't be a good father, or all these other things that kind of come along with that. Hell, the old people been arguing on Facebook about little boys having kitchen sets. Okay, so (laughs) (laughs) right, right. (laughs) We have a long way to go when it comes to just sexuality and gender understandings. Um, But Tim, you mentioned earlier, you touched on the biphobia within the LGBTQ plus community. And I really want to really want to do a deeper dive into this because I've seen it firsthand. I, I can admit when I was younger, I think I contributed to that as well. Um, I really want you to kind of map it out for us about the overt and maybe not so overt ways in which we perpetuate biphobia within the community. And also a second part of that question is, how does that make you feel? Do you feel a part of the community uh, given the biphobia that often shows up in our community? No, it's interesting. I have to, I have to one, I'm a Gen Xer. So, you know, I'll be 50 next year. I know black don't crack. You can go ahead. Oh, you don't look it. Um, (laughs) So, um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm thankful for millennials and Gen Xers because they have actually resisted some of that generational stuff that like makes us fit into these boxes and have enabled us to have nuanced and more complex identities. You know, uh, I have a daughter that's a millennial, right? So we're not that far in age. And she has taught me so much more about what it means to be a free Black person, period, right? Um, But I think the way that that shows up in our community is that we also, I think for a lot of people in the LGBT community, um, wanting and desiring so much to be normal, right, means that you also identify those people in the community that you don't see as normal, It contributes to uh, cisgender uh, black men being very transphobic. Like some of the most transphobic things I've ever heard said came from gay men about trans women. I'm like, hold on. She's doing too much. Who are they saying that about about 15 years ago? They were saying you was doing too much. Right. Um, And so like people not seeing the patterns of uh, it was Audre Lorde at one point. They said something about like sometimes the oppressed become the most you know, uh, the, the best oppressors because they've learned the, the, the oppression game super well. And so I think the idea is that control, right? Like if, if, if a man is interested in me and I happen to see a woman that I'm like, oh, you know, damn, all right. You know, uh, does that make me less capable of being committed just because I can acknowledge that I am attracted or do I have to hide that? And I think hiding it and pushing it down creates more issues in our community than sort of living authentically and really owning uh, our stuff. And I would love to see black people do that better than everybody else has, Um, you know? um, And so that's, that's, that's a part of it. I do think that the younger generations you're seeing 
more instances of of them dating women. And I will say this, like millennial and especially Gen Z uh, black women are more open to the idea of I might meet a guy that's actually had experiences with men. And that's something I might be willing to explore. But sometimes they're going to come under scrutiny by other black women. Right. I dated a I dated a woman. I, I came out in college and the first person I dated was a woman. Confused everybody. But me and this particular woman bonded around the conversations we were having about my sexuality. And I think once I was able to fully embrace that I was attracted to men, my attraction to her wasn't that I had to, but that I wanted to. And I, and I was drawn to her compassion and her open mindedness. So I wasn't hiding from her. But the black women collective got in her ear and they was like, well, you know, you got to be careful because, you know, he's going to give you something or all of these things. And she broke up with me. Heart still a little broken by it. But I decided after then for a while that I can't do the bisexual thing. You know, I was like, it's easier to just be gay because I like trying to actually own both aspects of your identity it's just too hard when you're getting criticisms from, from the gay guys saying, well, you're not really bi, you know, you're not really bisexual. You just haven't fully owned all of your gayness. And on the straight side, saying that you're out trying to manipulate or be confused as opposed to, you know what, like people are capable of having an attraction that is broad and expansive. Mm -hmm. mm. So uh, as a person who I've said on the show numerous times, I typically prefer to date uh, cis men that are f fluid um, in their sexuality. And I, I too have heard the Black Women Collective of like, girl, <laughs> be careful, you know. Um, but it's so funny. I think a lot of that has to do with the representation, uh, especially of like bisexual folks in the media, particularly like black media. And, and when we talk about black media, I'm talking about let's think of Insecure. Let's think of, you know, Amazon has this new show called Harlem and, you know, all, all of these things. Um, and so one thing that I can say, so I'm, I'm a huge Insecure fan. I love it. But y'all remember that storyline from, I believe, either season one or season two, where Molly was dating Jared, I believe his name was. And he turned out it wasn't for him. And it created this. I, I remember Twitter blew up. Um, and what's so funny, the juxtaposition for that is, you know, with this new show on Harlem. Uh, so let me just say two things. One, Amazon is not paying us for this. This is not an ad. Uh, and two, <laughs> no spoilers. I will not say who these people are or the characters or anything like that, but you'll see it in anyway. It's there. Um, but yes, in the show Harlem, um, there is a particular character who is who identifies as bisexual. And it's revolutionary almost in the way in which they've represented him in this um, in this show, because every time I've seen bisexual men identified in, in black media, black films, black television has always been it's a huge secret and they've been doing something on the DL or the he's like super hyper mask, hyper masculine. Um, and even on the other side of that, the woman who's dealing with this bisexual man, it's not a crisis of let me go talk to my friends about it and unpack it and, you know, all this other stuff. And, and, and it's not a big, Oh God, this is a huge deal. I'm so terrified now or anything like that. This is completely different representation of that. Um, so I would ask, how do you feel about like the current representation of, of queer and bisexual folks in the media? Um, and kind of like, what could we be doing better? Are, is it the fact of more, 
progressive, uh, you know, black sexuality representations, like, can this actually be the thing that helps change hearts and minds and possibly drive up a little bit of that ignorance? I, I think it is. What you just mentioned is in, in my way, in my mind, pretty revolutionary, right? Just sort of the, not so much the normalcy of it in the way that I was talking about normal before, but like ex- ex- showing and exposing relationships, Black relationships, Black love and the full diversity that actually exists, right? Because I think part of what I didn't have access to was what can Black love look like, you know, when I was exploring or considering who I was as a preteen or a teenager, I had zero models for what that could look like. It led to a lot of of dangerous uh, experimentation, uh, the worst of which landed me in testing HIV positive in 99 at 26 years of age. I am almost 50 now. I didn't imagine that I would live to get 50. Uh, But I also say because I'm an educator in our education system, that we need to tell our young people the truth. We need to give them models for how they can explore sexuality and not just sexually, but like, what does it mean to have relationships? What does consent look like? Right. If the only way you're talking about consent is like a girl and a guy and getting pregnant, you're leaving out a lot of other stuff. Right. Even for heterosexual stuff. Right. Consent is also at play when other kinds of sex are happening that are not uh, that are not pregnancy uh, related. And so I think it's really important for us to think about as a community, how we can be more honest and authentic with people and like at what age appropriate times would it be, uh, you know, worth having conversations with their young people about who they are and the way that they can experience sex in a way that's sort of healthy and affirming for all the parties involved. Yeah. Conversation is important because also bisexual men, I presume uh, pansexual men uh, or people are less likely to come out because of the fear of the stigma that they will face. Uh, Research shows that bisexual men may be more likely than gay men to anticipate stigmatizing reactions from others and just uh, don't share um, their sexuality. And only 28% of bisexuals say that the important people in their life that they are bisexual, while 77% of gay men and 71% of lesbians have come out to their loved ones. Uh, so my question to you, Tim, um, is how, what can we do to help to destigmatize um, what it means to be bisexual and pansexual and make it make safer spaces for people to come out and be their authentic selves? Yeah. I mean, I made that statement earlier that like, you know, the black community often vilifies the DL, but we created the DL. And I think about friends of mine that I ha- I know and have now who are men who were in, you know, there's a group of guys that I, I hang with and, uh, and most of them have probably come out. And we were talking, it's like, half of us are dads, <coughs> right? Half of us have been in relationships with women at some point in our lives or, or, or something of the uh, sort. And, but there are others who are terrified of being thought of as less than a man if they own or admit an attraction to a man. We have this idea, and I see it even in education and school settings where we need more strong black men, right? And when we have that idea of a strong black man in our head, there are a lot of people in our community believe that strong black man can't be a man that's same-sex attracted or can't be a man that's effeminate, right? And I think that effeminate brothers show a strength and confidence that, I admire, even though that's not my walk. Uh, you know, I don't, I'm not threatened or bothered by Billy Porter or Little Nas X when they do something. I'm like, that's a free black man. 
And that takes a lot of courage to do that. I don't show up that way, but I'm not threatened by someone showing up that way. And I think that we really have to challenge and create opportunities. And I think that 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 idea exists because we still have a tendency to to act as if the worst thing a man can be is gay or the worst thing a man can do is have an attraction to another man. Uh, and, and we we duplicate that message among boys when they're growing up, right? That like, you know, you do this, be a man. And I think that we'd see different kind of men if we created a kind of culture that says, hey, you know, being a man is about being responsible, being accountable, being kind, being vulnerable. Uh, it doesn't mean, you know, I think one of the one of the roles that I played personally is as a teacher and an educator who was out. I was out as a as a teacher, as one of the few black men teachers when I taught in D.C. I was a, a, a assistant varsity basketball coach and I was out uh, as, as someone. And so I think a lot of those young people, their notions of masculinity, of, of, of who a black man could be. Of, of, and I was probably for some of them, the strongest black man that they knew. And so I've gotten emails and letters from them saying, you know, Mr. West, you taught me so much. And, you know, I'm raising my son differently because I had an example of somebody like that. And it's like, you know what? Like if, if my son tells me he's gay, you know, I'll beat anybody's whatever, you know, that tries to mess with him because they, they actually have been educated. They have proximity to someone in their life who they respect and that they honor uh, uh, as someone who is uh, a part of the LGBT community. Community. So I think that's what, that's what we need more of. I also, you know, as someone that also does stuff in hip hop, I came out in hip hop because I wanted people not to equate queer masculinity with DL. And I remember doing a presentation for a middle school in D.C. and the girl was said, well, like, what's it like being on the DL? And I was like, I'm here telling you about my sexuality. So I'm not on the DL. But for her, DL meant she said, but I can't tell. In her mind, DL meant you are a man who does not show up in ways that we consider stereotypical, but that's what we've created. That's just trade. <laughs> that's just trade. That's all it is. That's all it is. And in some cases, trade win, right? You know? <laughs> because I mean, you know, I, I may appear in certain, and sometimes I even forget that like when I go into a new space that people are mapping certain ideas onto my body because I show up in particular ways. I'm like, oh, wow. Like I remember when the superintendent asked me if I was bringing my wife to like a holiday party. And I was like, uh, actually, no, I'm bringing Eric. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and she was like, you know, she had a moment. But then I think from now on, she won't make that assumption, you know, when she's when she's asking about things. I, I'll also just say this, and this is a, a personal charge of mine. You know, um, I think one of the biggest like, you know, uh, ways that we can contest global white supremacy is to actually be more inclusive, right? Like I, I want black people to get inclusion right before anybody else gets it right. Call it a superiority complex. When I, when I saw Wakanda in the, in the movie, I was like, that's an inclusive place where like all the black people are like living their best lives and thriving, right? Uh, and, and that's the place that I imagine as opposed to while we continue to knock each other down and create these divisions, when we're up under, we're under so much right now, uh, the way that white supremacy is rearing its ugly head that we can't afford to sit around and complain about somebody liking a guy versus a girl or he wore a dress. I'm like, hey, you wore the dress? Come on, like, we gotta, we gotta be in this revolution together. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> you know, are, are you willing to be on the front lines and fight if it comes down to that to protect our people and our children and our community? And so that's, that's kind of how I think of it. 
and I think it's also we have to challenge sexism at the same time, because I think so much of toxic masculinity. One of the points I, I made once is that I've always struggled with the term emasculation. Because I don't think women are bad. And so this idea that like some aspect of me is being compared to a woman, I think women are amazing. So I, I don't I don't feel like I can be emasculated because if someone's comparing an attribute of me to a, a black woman, I think that's magical. I think it's fierce. I think it's resilient. I think all these positive things. And so what does that mean when we start also challenging men around their opinions and beliefs about black women? Right. Because uh, black women aren't less than black men. They're not less anything than black men. And we begin to see the, the relationship between sexism and and heterosexism and homophobia in the black community, because those two things are are connected. Uh, listen, I can talk to you all day, but uh, <laughs> final question. Um, and because I also want to give you an opportunity to, you know, shout out anybody who's doing dope work in this space. For folks who are looking to do, you know, more advocacy work or looking for additional resources, trying to educate themselves, what recommendations do you have for them as they're working towards, you know, creating safe spaces for the bi community as allies or, you know, if you want to call them co-conspirators, especially within the Black community? Yes, it's really interesting because I don't think there are enough of those resources that explicitly sort of name bisexuality, pansexuality. Um, you know, one thing I can say is like, I'm looking to the generation of uh, people in the arts uh, who are coming up and actually forging a lot of this work. And so um, to, to your point, like shows like Harlem and Insecure are really uh, giving us portraits of Black experience that are a lot more, um, I think, realistic, quite honestly, right? It wasn't as if bisexuality, pansexuality, polyamory, all these other things weren't happening before, you know, the, the boomers in particular, they were just like, we ain't talking about this, you know, and, and the exes like me were like, well, you know, we'll talk about it a little bit. And then the millennials just came down and knocked down the door. It's like, no, we, we're going to talk about this. Right. Because I think it's it's all in the service of healing our community. Um, and in terms of resources, you know, I, I don't have like a book list of things that people can read, uh, but I think that people can can follow like uh, Darnell Moore is, is someone that I find is really interesting and nuanced in terms of what he does. Uh, Native Son Now is, is an Instagram um, uh, um, channel or page. Uh, Emil Wilbekin, my fellow Cincinnatian, uh, is, is doing that work. And I think it's just really interesting. I think the more proximity and exposure people have to other identities, the less odd and weird it seems. I think people live in a world where they uh, they think a lot of people think just like them. And so I challenge those who are pansexual, bisexual, uh, gay. Uh, you know, I challenge you to, to be more visible. I think the greatest lessons people have learned has been through my own courage to speak my truth. And I speak it in the barbershop. I don't know, maybe they say, hey, Tim M's coming. You know, it's like, Jesus is coming, be good. You know, Tim M's coming, like, let's not be sexist or homophobic. But they know, like, when I'm in the barbershop, I don't hear the toxic stuff because I'm like, hey, you know, I got a daughter. You know, I wouldn't want y'all talking about her like that when you walk by. And, you know, what, you going to call somebody a, a, the F word and you want them to give you a good tip? No, nah, nah, we're not doing that, right? And that's about accountability. A lot of what we call cancel culture is really about accountability culture. How can we help us as a Black community be better? do better. You know, I think Black love, if, if we loved each other as fiercely as we, we focus on some of our divisions, you know, white supremacy would be scared as hell of, of what we can do. 
And I think that's that's the train that I'm on. That's that freedom train I'm on. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Love. Love is I keep always say to people love is expansive. Um, it is not limiting. And as we open up our hearts, I think we'll open up our minds, too. Um, but thank you so much, Timo, for joining us here on Dear Culture. This was a very riveting conversation. And, and thank and thank you. Thank you. Thank you for showing up, brother. I'm like, you know, he's like, OK, I'm bringing it. I'm bringing it. And I think that's important, too. Right. That we have Shana, that both of you can be leading this conversation in a way that's not like spooky or normal, but it's the way that we show up. This is blackness and this is black empowerment and this is black love. And so thank you both for uh, uh, having me on the show. And I hope I said something worth, you know, noting and it made some sense. Oh no, you dropped gems. It was you dropped gems. <laughs> oh, you, you dropped you dropped all the gems. Yes. I, I got got a few gems. I have a I have a I have a, a friend that calls me. She says, Tim, you're like everybody's favorite black gay uncle. <laughs> <laughs> just want you just want me at the cookout so yes. I can drop some gems of knowledge, you know. So hey, and I do eat. So <laughs> any of y'all that want to invite me to the cookout, I'll I'll show up with my gems. Yes, yes. And if you want to hear or learn more about Timum, you can visit his website at www.braveeducator.com. That's B-R-A-V-E educator.com or follow him at Brave Educator. Um, and also be sure to check out the Brave Educator podcast. For more information, please check out his website and his social. We want to remind our listeners to support your local Black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The business that we will highlight this week is Henry Masks. Founded in 2020, Henry Mask Co. is a Black-owned mask company that launched in order to supply the general public with the best personal protection travel mask through a subscription service. The Henry Mass team prides themselves on being a community-focused organization. They actively work to create jobs in their local community and donate one mask to healthcare workers and families in need with every sale. To learn more about Henry Mask or to place an order, visit henrymask.com. That's H-E-N-R-Y-M-A-S-K.com. The GRIA has published a list of 50 plus black businesses support during the coronavirus pandemic. If you'd like your business to be featured, email us at info at the That's G-R-I-O dot com. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone, you know. And please email all questions, suggestions and compliments. We love those to podcast at the the Dear Culture Podcast is brought to you by The Creo and co-produced by Taji Sr., Sydney Henriquez-Payne, and Abdul Kadus.